Hey, Jim, come on in. We're just having tea. It's what? We're just having tea. Ah. Perfect timing. Did you get here? No, I was I came in early oh. this afternoon. Thank you. Mm. Good enough to talk to you about two names. <laughs> we can't decide which one. Mm. Welcome, welcome. Summertime. <laughs> Grab a chair or a floor. Yeah. We got enough chairs? So, vehicle. We already have a question, right? Vehicle? You have a bunch. Actually, it was fascinating watching the digging, yeah. thing, whatever it's called. Digging with the stumps, yeah. Oh my God. They're great, eh? It's just remarkable. It's so quick. Those yeah, trees... Which ones were like more stubborn in terms of they were really deeply rooted? Uh-huh. Like some of the smaller trunks actually were more deeply, deeply rooted. Deeply rooted, yeah. Hold the, the, the vehicle way up. Uh-huh. The truck, whatever it's called. You know, the, those trees had a fungus. Oh. So they were slowly collapsing, but also were building the meditation hall there. So we had someone who was a good woodcutter. We took them all out, and then we felt so sad because <laughs> we really liked the trees, but they had to go eventually. They could have lasted a few more years, but yeah, they're beautiful trees. First, but they had a, a, a fungus, so they weren't. And one had fallen over into the into the tree over there, so it was time. Kind of a. Madonna lesson, you know, the difficulty of uprooting <laughs> yeah. trees and so forth. Trees and so forth. <laughs> mm. And just how much like a hand it is. It just it looks like a hand pushing. They're very good operators, aren't they? And shaking the stump to get all the soil off so, uh -huh. and moving it over and dropping it. Just fascinating. So you had a question on the vehicle? Yeah. Reading? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in the yogic tradition, vehicles are very symbolic of who's riding on it and why they ride on it. So I was curious in that, the context of that sutta you read. It's like, let's say someone is alcoholic and they join AA and then they have the 10-point program. The 10-point program is their vehicle. So, as they're traveling on, that's where they stay. They stay in that vehicle. Now, over there, there's a drink. It's another vehicle. Mm -hmm. Right? And uh, I'll, I'll get off this vehicle right now, and I'll just try that vehicle. No. Stay, stay in your vehicle. It's safer. So, it's the idea of committing yourself to a, a system of living that um, protects you, guides you, encourages you in a direction you want to go. So the alcoholic wants to go to sobriety and takes up that particular vehicle. So uh, I've picked up the Theravada vehicle. And Ajahn Samedi used to joke, you know, we have Mahayana, Hinayana, all these different words. And he said, well, it's good enough. It's a Volkswagen. It's not a Rolls Royce. It's just, you know, it's, it's good enough. And rather than think you need the best, and so that was one way he talked about it. But so my particular vehicle is monasticism then. And that's, that's highly engineered and, and highly defined, let's say. Uh, and there, uh, that helps me be aware of my own intentions, my own inclinations, in a way that is both edifying, I understand myself more, protective, it doesn't take me, it doesn't, it says don't go there, that's not, not a good idea, but it takes me to other places, go here, this is, you know, this is a good direction. So the vehicle then also has a, has a, 
has a direction. So let's say I had a very interesting with my mother. Right? I took care of her when she was elderly. So I couldn't I couldn't keep all the monks' rules. But all the monks' rules are not moral. Some like eating in at in the evening is not you know having a pizza at ten at night is not immoral, or watching a movie is not immoral. So the rules of the monastery monasticism are not just about morality. They're about common agreements, about renunciation, about etiquette, all manner of things. So with my mother, like monks aren't supposed to cook, and I'm living alone with my mother. Monks aren't supposed to live alone with women. I'm living alone with my mother. Monks aren't supposed to touch women. I'm washing my mom, right? So there are all kinds of things I'm doing. But their rules, the vehicle, is also about intention. You know, what is my intention now? In, in caring for, for, for my mom. So how can I use this vehicle now in a kind of context which is not the usual roadway that I'm used to traveling on called monastery? So I, I, I figured out, okay, what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to do this, 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 and this. It's against the rules, but none of that is immoral. It's not a transgression of morals. It's just simply a, a movement away from our agreement that the Buddha asks us to live by. So then I went to my teachers and my senior monks, and I said, okay, this is what I'm doing. Mom's, uh, when I reached her, she was 87 already. Uh, and I'm going to do this, this, and that. And they said, perfect. She's compassionate. But, every, you know, but I always kept the rules in the sense, I know, okay, I've gone outside the boundaries. I never said that, oh, that now these boundaries are going to change, and I'm going to... I actually kept the boundaries all the time, but I broke them. I broke them mindfully. I knew why I was doing it, but it wasn't a moral. It wasn't any moral act. It was an act of compassion. But I always kept to the same vehicle. I kept driving in the Theravada vehicle, and and uh, it was quite interesting. So like cooking, cooking for my mom, um, cooking something in the evening. I didn't taste it because it wasn't for me. It was for my mom. But I wasn't going to have her start, right? I was going to take care of her. Um, so it was a kind of understanding your vehicle is very, very helpful. And then, you know, you travel through life. And, but the vehicle, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good image for, you know, staying with what is wholesome and skillful in moral ways. And in, in, like one of our reflections as monks is uh, uh, content with little. So we, we begin, when we begin as monks, we have a recitation about food, about clothing, about shelter, about medicine. And these are the four basic requisites. And that we need just a minimum, and that's good enough. We don't need more. We don't need um, macrobiotic diet or, or, or uh, whatever food preferences might might. Just enough to keep you going for the, for the day. So that is part of the vehicle, but it's a reflective part. So as a young monk, I go to Thailand and it says, yeah, practice contentment with little. Well, my mind was not content with little. It was only content with a lot, because I always had a lot. And all of a sudden I found I was into food, and I, was, I, didn't th I never considered myself a foodie, I just ate. But I didn't realize I could eat anything anytime I wanted. Now all of a sudden I had very, very little options. It was eat or don't eat this, and what I could eat or not eat was quite limited. So then I could see the, the discontent, but the reflection, the mirroring was contentment with little is the basis for freedom. And so that helped me watch the complaining, the, unfortunately I've never been hypochondriac and into, you know, that kind of dietary thinking, um, but I could just watch, oh gosh, there's that sticky rice again, or oh, these hot curries are burning my eyeballs out, right, that kind of thing, and no, content is good enough. So the, 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 the habit of my mind was getting what I wanted, but now the reflection was, no, no be content even though you don't get what you want. Do that for 40 years. Stay in that vehicle for 40 years, it has, you know, obviously it has very, very good results. So the vehicle has, you know, has moral, for me, moral implications, 
uh, contemplative uh, attitudes, uh, social ways, of, you know, many, many, many things. It's very rich that way. So you, you, your vehicle, you know, whatever it is, your, your moral boundaries, your, the way you relate to society, to your parents, to your partner, you know, these different things, um, is, is something that helps you. And, and you might not define it like, it, a lot of it would be just intuitively, you know, you don't go there, right? Whereas with us, it's, it's very highly defined, so to say. We have, we have four rules, which are called parajika, or defeat offenses, and if we break those, any one of those four rules, in the doing of that action, we are no longer a monk. Very serious. Only four. And one is stealing. Up to, I think, uh, about $50. It's by the gold standard. Mm-hmm. So it's like significant thievery. And uh, so if a, if, a, if a monk were to be given, let's say, uh, a computer in England and he was coming into Canada and there was customs duty to be paid and he knew it and he knew the customs duty would be a certain over fifty dollars if he walks through customs intentionally not declaring that computer hence stealing more than fifty dollars once he is through customs and he's done the act he's no longer a monk He's done. Finished. Parajika. So that scares the hell out of us. (laughs) So we'll declare gum. (laughs) So that's an intentional act. It's an intentional act. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so the gross acts are very much around uh, moral acts, which are very, very intentional. Um, So that's very protective. And then there's just like things that we're just careless of, like wrong speech, and it's intentional, but it's not so deliberate. But like, just like, if we make if we make fun of another monk because of their racial characteristics or something about their nationality, that's an offense. So you start to make cynical jokes about Irishmen or something like that, and and it, well, wait, no, no, you can't do that. So you kind of try, obviously, humor, which is not hurtful and so on. It's quite a it's quite a good vehicle that way. Yeah. It's a good it's a good analogy. So you have you know your your vehicle takes you, yeah. Discipline say if you do yoga, your vehicle says, yeah, do yoga every day. Do do the postures and, and so on. Yeah? What, you had some more questions? Thank you. Um, well, maybe someone else would like to ask a question, though. Go for it. If we got a question, it's pretty good. <laughs> We're all grateful. Oh, well, um, I was reading your book, and mm-hmm. I loved your description of metta. Mm-hmm. And there's so much written about it now um, as loving kindness, and it can be kind of a as Carrie says, a goopy practice. Sentimental. That's yeah. one of his favorite ones, is goopy sentimental. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I like how you're talking about this. And I was just curious, um, I mean, it's, it's taught that you can meditate on metta or have a metta practice. And I, I've always been a little unsure what that actually means or looks like or might feel like with the perspective you have as more well as as he was as Venerable Pasadico was asking I look just my own interpretation I look at metta as a kind of deliberate seemingly dualistic practice that one um, evokes in a very deliberate and and systematic way so um I might, in the morning, think of all the Sangha members, visualize them, may you be well, may you be well, may you, and just go through everyone, may you be well. And so that's very deliberate, and that connects me to each of them in a very human way. 
and it it tends to create somewhat of a momentum in my mind of that attitude and whatever you do whatever you think that movement creates momentum doesn't it right? and, and so negatively too so by having done that then if I feel later on uh, an hour later annoyance at someone I'll probably have a better chance of seeing the annoyance because I have also this you know that you're a human being you got to practice you're learning you have karma that kind of thing and I probably have a better chance of seeing the aversion so that would help me on a personal level and it just feels good it's a very uh, truly rewarding uh, thing to, to, to dwell on now so that's one way and then you get you get very um, you've read these different ways of uh, like Sharon Salzberg's book on that she, she really used it as a very deep concentration practice where she had the how many types of beings all the permutations and combinations she did and she got very very absorbed into that so there was a highly highly defined and highly refined uh, systematic ways of getting deep deep samadhi from the heart and then there's kind of more general way where like I just kind of say chemical bring it to my heart and you'll be well something more so there's many ways to do that but then um, there and that that's looking at our life uh, as people as me a person and you a person and that's one way that we call conventional reality but then the other way of looking at our experience is just through flow of consciousness that my experience of you is a visual perception, is an audio perception, is a memory, and that's always changing, right? And that's what we call the five khandhas or, or the mind-body experience or, or just, uh, say, uh, stream of consciousness. Right? So then there isn't, like, if I, if I think of Kameko, uh, there isn't really a person. There's just these different perceptions feelings according to time and place, according to my mood, according to what you said to me, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And, and now within those movements of consciousness, uh, I can get stuck through my own fears or my own aversions or my passions, and I get so engaged with that that I lose the freedom of the mind. I don't see it as a flow that I can respond to in a healthy way. I get caught up with greed, hatred, and delusion in some way. And so flow of consciousness then preoccupies me in an unhealthy way. Why, why is it this way? It shouldn't be that way. Why are they different? Or what am I going to do? And so on and so forth. So it's not just flow of consciousness to which I'm responding in a, in a good and healthy way. It's preoccupation. And, that, and there's no freedom in that preoccupation. <clears throat> and, and then I have to contemplate that myself. Why? why what is it about this type of mood that preoccupies my attention. So it's no longer about the person, it's about the moods of the mind and, and the types of mindsets where a sense of self gets embedded or I get very much lost into. And then I notice that I, I'm either kind of lo- like resisting something or I'm trying to become something. And I figure, well, okay, if I can just see this flow, what would I have to do? What attitudes would I have to develop to allow this flow to be the way it is, according to nature, respond from compassion and responsibility, but not get embedded in it and preoccupied with it? What would I need to do? And the, the language I really like is uh, Ajahn Sumedho uses two phrases. Uh, it all belongs, and it's like this. Now, it's like this is the nature of this moment, Dharma. And, and, and you could say, well, how else could it be as a thought? But as, a, as an awakening statement, it's, it's very true. It's like this. So he uses that. It's like this to help us stop our thinking minds. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling uh, it's too hot in here or something. No, hot is like this. Or I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Oh, not knowing is like this. 
Sajjan Samadhi uses the language of awakening. It's like this. And it seems so very, very simple, but it's actually hard to do because to be fully with the present moment as it is and not just get caught up in it with our analysis and judgment, I just be in the present moment, it's quite hard, and the past and future. So it's like this, is the awakened mind, and then it all belongs as the acceptance, and that's where the metta comes in. That's that second way, that, which I like to think of. So then awareness is, is has, has, you could say, has breadth, has heart, is receptive, rather than awareness being misconstrued as being control. That's what sometimes people think awareness is. They think it's kind of controlling things so that you don't have anger, uh, so that you don't feel jealous and, and, and from some idealism. But here, no, it all belongs. The jealousy belongs, the fear belongs, the resentment belongs. But it's like this, frees you from the attachment to it, the preoccupation with it. So let's say, I feel, you know, let's say that one of the, let's say Lancelot comes to me and says he's enlightened, right? He really had a good meditation, right? Now I've been working at this for a long, long time, and you know, God, it's not fair. <laughs> 44 years and it's just bloody hell, and I get jealous, right? Now you could say, no, 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 you should be happy, he's enlightened, yeah, I'm happy, uh, sour grapes. <laughs> But if I just say, yeah, jealousy feels like this, and it all belongs, then I'm free. I'm free from the preoccupation with jealousy. Jealousy is just a, a condition in nature. Huh? And, that, and for some states of mind, that's very hard to do. Some we understand it, and some we get, we get sort of taken by things, and that's where we train. Oh, this belongs. It's okay. Yeah. Can I ask you about that? Because I was working with someone and um, they had this attitude like this person that has a lot of anger, right? And Ajahn Chimedi says it all belongs, it all belongs as a rationalization not to change, to transform that deep habit momentum in the mind, right? So I was saying, well, there's also discernment. So maybe you could say something about that, because I think it could be a rationalization for the I'm just an angry person. And yeah, it could be misused. Yeah. Right. So you have to be pretty advanced to do that. I would say, excuse my cheese. No. <laughs> um, I'd say you'd have to, you know, he's pitching it to people who already have taken responsibility for their greed, hatred, and delusion. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, he kind of, you know, if he found someone was indulging in anger, then he'd say, you're not awake to anger, you're just indulging in anger. So it's like this is the first requirement, and indulging in anger is not, it's like this. It's indulging in anger, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So you have to get the first to the awakened mind. And so what he's pointing to is our tendency to idealize and then, um, blame ourselves for not living up to those ideals. So it's, it, it's something that's pitched to our culture, mm -hmm. right? Sure, it can be misused. Certainly it can be misused. So if it's pitched to our culture, our culture tends to be guilt-ridden, uh, self-disparaging, attached to ideals, and so on. Um, but if someone was like ripping people off and say it's like this and it all belongs, I'm going to rip you off, <laughs> then a different strategy would be called for. <laughs> so the teachings are always in, in the context of, of the person you know, it's being talked about. Quite, I mean, the people I hang out with tend to be, they're really kind of, they're trying to work with, with you know, these things and they're usually quite responsible. I know, I know, like, Bob, he doesn't like that it all belongs. He likes more it's all a part of nature. But Ajahn Sumedho tries to do that because of the tendency to vibhavatana, the resistance, the trying to get rid of it. So that's the context. Mm -hmm. Like if a monk 
say, you know, like if I found a monk drinking whiskey in the afternoon or in the morning, <laughs> and he said to me, it's like this, Bhante, and it all belongs, I'd throw him out. <laughs> that belongs too. Out you go. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's sila too or whatever. These things, you know, these one-liners, you kind of get them, right? I was th- Ajahn Amaro had a beautiful one-liner. Um, the, the jitta is not a person, or emotions are not a person. Mm-hmm. Quite a good, quite a good... You know, as, you, as you're feeling upset about something, you say, oh, emotions are not a person. It's quite, quite strong. And, I was, and afterwards I was thinking, we should do a book of one-liners <laughs> that Ajahn's have used. Because they're very powerful, you know. These different one-liners that we somehow we, we know we pick up on, but I won't. <laughs> Did that? Is that okay? Yeah, Gaudi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim. Yeah. They're not absolute. Yeah, the, the teaching. The Theravada is not an absolute teaching. Mm-hmm. It's a reflective teaching. <clears throat> it's not. No, like people who are very doctrinaire have difficulty with that. How can it be both? You said one thing yesterday, and now you're saying this other thing. You don't see there's a context and there's a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the doctrinaire have a hard time. This other kind of meta, uh-huh. when you reach the point of it's like this and all the things. But then I don't understand. You were somehow talking about this other kind of. Well, a, a receptive quality of awakeness, which accepts all things, rejects none, but lives in a moral framework. Is meta. Met, that meta would be a component in the awake mind. Excuse me, cheese. <laughs> So, as opposed to being something separate, like there's metta here, mm-hmm. and there's the awake mind here, right? Mm-hmm. And there's cheese over there, kind of thing. <laughs> Rather, we're talking, you know, we're pointing to maybe one thing that has, you know how they say the Dharma is like a, a diamond with different facets. So the awake mind mm, has a quality of, first of all, non-craving. So, non-becoming, non-resistance, non-preoccupation. So, if you're, if you're preoccupied with sense experience, then that's not the awake mind. It's a mind which is preoccupied with sense experience. If you know it, if you're, like, you're preoccupied with, like, if I'm preoccupied with a working with a table saw or something, sure, yeah, there's focus. But I'm not preoccupied in an egotistical way or a, in a deluded way. I'm focused, but I'm not deluded by the focus. Right? So that's called kamatanha, or attachment to sensual desire. And then bhava, bhava is becoming. So rather than being awake to the way things are, I'm trying to always get to the way things are. I'm trying to get to that place called mindfulness, or awareness, or enlightenment. But you can't do it. You can't do that. That doesn't make sense at all. And then the other, resisting, oh, this anger, I want, to, I want to be awake to the way things are, I don't want this anger. So then the awake mind knows it all and accepts it all because craving has been abandoned. So it's not lost in sense experience, it's not moving to the future, not rejecting the past. It's just, and to me, that's, that very openness is the metta aspect, the awakeness, the brightness, the knowing, the knowing. And then the, that openness, acceptance, allowing these movements of nature to be the way they are, is the, the metta part of it, the heart part of it. So how do you describe that, right? And just we use language to try to point to that. And then we, you know, then you watch in your own mind how some things you get lost in, some moods, or, or resist them, or, or 
or the mind is kind of always becoming and say, oh yeah, that's not really awake. And then rather than trying to get rid of those, because this is what we do, we see, we see a habit and then we try to get rid of that habit. But that's still preoccupation. It's not really awake. So to trust in the awake mind, so let's say you feel disgruntled about something and you've been thinking about it for an hour and then you notice, then immediately for most of us, as before we get on this path, as, as soon as we know we've been sort of lost in this disgruntled state of mind, we try to do something about it so that we're not lost in it. But then you're caught in self again, you're becoming. Rather than knowing, oh, disgruntled mind is like this. Then you've established clarity and metta, and then that adds up to two moments and three moments until that way of being is, is more profound than the habits of delusion, more power, more, more presence. And that's what you have to trust in, rather than being someone who's trying to become better. Mm. You know, it's not the becoming worse, but someone becoming anything is still someone becoming something, and that's, that's a... that doesn't work. <laughs> Doing the other is saying, well, it doesn't really matter, I'll just punch you in the face, you know, Bhante said it all belongs. <laughs> so, that's not it either. But it's the awakened mind without a sense of self. Because if you just if you just listen to the fan, there's no sense of self in there. There's awareness, there's knowing, but there's it's only when you start to think, well what should I be hearing? What does it mean by awake? Am I awake? <laughs> but if you just listen in that sense of no thought. I can't find an individual, I can, there's knowing. And that's what you want to apply when you get disgruntled. So you, you know, you find yourself, you know, you're complaining about the state of American politics or something like that, and you know, and you just had a, a, a good old rave with someone on the phone and it's terrible, terrible, terrible in your mind, and, and oh wow, I should stop thinking that way, you know. I should I shouldn't do the news anymore. I shouldn't do you know, yeah, okay, but oh, I'm back again. Oh, this is it. Life is like this. That's what you want to trust in. The returning to the awake mind. It's a remembering something that's always there rather than a becoming of something that you think you should get. <clears throat> but it sounds like you're becoming um, more adept at noticing all these subtle ways that we process. Yes, yes. Whatever is contacting. Yes, yeah. You're much more aware of thought, uh, much less uh, believing in self-thought. I thought, my thought, me thought. Much less like buying into the whole becoming, going somewhere, that kind of thing. And yet you're efficient. You work well. It's not like you're some kind of zombie. And I can see you're getting into now opinions, assumptions, and views. Yeah, all that, really yeah. Invisible stuff, our so-called reality. And, and it's endless, isn't it? Yeah. I think the space of no thought is very important. You know, like, like I was saying, excuse my cheese, <laughs> I was saying, I think earlier, I yesterday me, whatever. Last few months I've been doing, when am I? Very interesting. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a box. I'm making a box, and I mean, oh, I wanna, I wanna get it. Uh, again, it's gotta be done. So I gotta get that. Wait, when am I? When I want something, and then I let go of that wanting. Oh, this just work. Future. I wanna get something finished. When am I? Oh yeah. And I'm getting it to cut into the whole bhava, the whole becoming. Just with a phrase, mm. where am I? And it stops, and it starts, and you know. So you, you once you get this, you start to do really interesting things with your own habits, and you start to just break into them, not not change them to become something else, but awaken to them so they have less and less power. And that, and that's very personal, I find. You know, they're kind of like I've been using for the last few years. Um, 
that sound is in awareness. Bodily feeling is in awareness. And that's very profound for me. It's not just a trick. It's something that brings me to a spacious awakeness to the way things are. So I do that a lot. I listen to sound, or sound is in awareness. And then my body, the body, <laughs> is in awareness. And, and those kinds of self-suggestions, shall I say, or whatever, uh, from your own insights, begin to allow non-attachment to function, which is so ineffable, because a non-attachment is an experience. You don't get non-attachment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do non-attachment. I'm really trying so that tomorrow I can do non-attachment. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. So you get, you get a sense that this is in awareness, is non-grasping. And you trust that, and you trust that, and you trust that. And it's not the same as getting some experience of love or, or, or deep samadhi. It's different. But then you see, oh yeah, that does work. Subtly. And like we were talking about intuition the other day. I can also see there's a, that's the selfing that goes on. Yes, yeah. That's the question. Um, when am I? If you're here and you're looking, wanting to get something done, mm-hmm. that's that duality and there's that edge of the self. And that's the becoming, Baba Tanha. Becoming. So I work very much with the Theravada ideas. Then, you know, there's the, of the three cravings, Baba, becoming, and Vibhava, resistance. I watch those a lot, and then I use language to, like for non-resistance, I use it all belongs. So I'm you know, resisting something, oh, it all belongs. And then I, that's a mirror to my resistance to life. As opposed to saying, you shouldn't resist. You know, it all belongs, you should just open your heart in purity. <laughs> Give me a break. Because <laughs> that's, that's not life. Yeah, so you're looking at, oh, non-resistance, then you see resistance better. Uh, when, when am I? You see Baba. Well, it's all about awakening. That makes sense? Yeah? And you get, you know, you find, I, I say most monks, I, I like to, so what's your phrase? What's your one-liner? And you kind of trade, it's like trading hockey cards. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I've got a Gordy Howe. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jim, you're you're with us for. You're going to leave tomorrow? Just overnight, yeah. Okay. This week, so. Thanks. Thanks for the come. So let me. We'll uh, maybe I'll see you after breakfast. We can have a little conference on names. All right. <laughs> see what you think. My one of my one liners is uh, "Where's Jim in this?" Yeah. So I'm going to change that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where's Where's self in this? Right. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You have to understand what the awake mind is, and when you get that, then you, you find your own language of, of return, I would say. Of? Of returning, yeah. To that which is always there. And what happens is, I don't know, like, all the intellectual structures kind of seem unnecessary then. Because I, I, I used to know all kinds of lists. I can't get one out now. So I'm always afraid someone's going to ask me a list, but but they don't seem necessary anymore because they're they're they all to me they're pointing to one thing, and they're very very helpful. But I think once you understand that one thing, the awakened mind, then it just gets very simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's to say? That's why it's so hard to teach. Well, just let go. <laughs> Utterly simple. <laughs> it's elegant. It's very very elegant. Yeah. And so then it, it's more simple like trust and faith in in that insight. Uh, very simple. And then the the uh, the complexity of 
the lists and so on, somehow, for me, Ajahn Sumedho and others, it can't become un- uninteresting. Because they're, they're like, like Ajahn Shah would say about the dependent origination of things like that. He says, yeah, yeah, it's true. But when you fall out of a tree, you just hit the ground. <laughs> you don't count the branches going down. <laughs> so yeah, different ways to say it. Not that I'm against those things, it's just to think probably a time in one's practice where things become very simple. Mm-hmm. Very, very simple. I heard one one teacher say, um, "You are basically constructing a better, more wholesome self uh-huh. in the beginning until that can begin to drop away." Yeah, I've heard that line. I always felt I was constructing, or this way of life was constructing a social framework. Which defined my life in a way which was wholesome, from which I could witness the unwholesome and not go that way and go, go towards the wholesome, rather than constructing us, you know, that whole idea of constructing a wholesome self or unwholesome right. self has never worked for me. The word ego has never worked for me because it implies, you know, like it's the ego's problem. Poor guy, there's no ego and he gets blamed for everything. So I've never, that language has never appealed to me. What's appealed to me is more, I think as early on I did see it was about the awakened mind and what what occluded that or, or what covered that and what, what in my character uh, would get lost, how it would get lost. And that I found a social framework was very helpful. Uh, um, but but that's not my mouth, right? That's what I had. But I can see what they're saying. Yeah, you know, you're you're constructing moral principles, principles of responsibility. Yeah, yeah I'm, I can understand that. Wholesome habits. Wholesome habits. habits yeah. Habits versus unwholesome habits. Unwholesome habits. Yeah. It seems to be a concession that if you're selfing anyway, make it a good one. Until you reach that point where you realize that's not even necessary and falls away. I don't know. Because I think when things fall away is when there is no... Because the danger, wouldn't it, I don't know, the danger there, wouldn't that be around idealism? That you find high of an ideal, what a good self is, and then start to struggle with what you consider to be a bad self? I, I don't know. Well, maybe maybe not. more like a vehicle. Okay. It's a vehicle that only takes you so far, ah. and then you get out of it. To go the rest of the way. Yeah, so, so as monks... it's no longer necessary. Yeah, as monks, we, we have our rules, right? Mm-hmm. And even the enlightened, say the enlightened monks, they still had to keep their rules. Mm-hmm. They couldn't say, I'm now enlightened, hence I can do what I want to do. They always had to, because they kept it for the whole community that way. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, some some vehicles of reflection for sure. Yeah, and, and, and language is not that important, but just for me, it never, never quite. Because I was I, I I didn't enter into Buddhism from a psych, uh, psychology background. I entered in it from a background with Krishnamurti mm-hmm. and the awakened mind. So so and and Sri Ramana and Nisargadatta and people like that. So I wasn't coming from. Like I never felt I needed to analyze my pro- my problems, as it were. I I just felt I needed to return to the awakened mind. So probably where you're coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are three heroes of mine. Yeah, they're yeah. Amazing. At Krishnamurti, I actually saw him speak in uh, England. Wow. Three thousand people. Wow. He was giving the Pope a hard time. The Pope had just, had just been elected, and he had watched it on television or something. And I think the black smoke is when it's elected, and the yeah, white yeah. smoke or something. And he he came on stage, and he had Parkinson's then. He's a very elegant man, yeah. very elegant. And he and he and he sat on a simple wooden chair and kept his hands here, 
so that he wouldn't shake because he had the Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. But he said, all monks are charlatans. And I said, ooh. <laughs> 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 it was a bit strong because he was railing against the... But he was, he was, you know, just... There's something about reading his work in India that opened my mind, so... What do, you, what do you remember of Nizagadatta Maharaj? I think I read it in one night, the I am that. Couldn't put it down. Yeah. Or two nights. Well, I think Advaita has you know, great teachers and, and some teachers who I wonder sometimes. And it's, uh, I think well, the best of Advaita for me is that it emphasizes the unconditioned and the possibility and then the and Theravada emphasizes the problem is attachment to the Khandas. And where Theravada, I think, can um, be weak, I don't think weak is the right word. Well, where it's somehow, what's the word? It, it so emphasizes attachment to the Khandas that some, sometimes people forget that the reason it's pointing to that is because there is the unconditioned. Mm. So then it can get overly negative or seemingly negative <clears throat> because people forget that the reason the Buddha is pointing to the khandas as being attached to the problem because there is the unconditioned. Mm. So I think Advaita, the best of Advaita, as an adjunct, to, you know, there is, there is the enlightened mind and you are that, right? Mm. Now, people who then take that on board and say, well, I don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. They still watch television, which is doing something, and they're still eating potato chips, which is still doing something, right? So then they, they misinterpret that into some facile sense that I'm already enlightened, which is, which is silly. But I think if you take it seriously, and, and you take what the best of Advaita is doing, and then the best of Theravada, I think it's a, actually a very... I found it very useful, very, very useful. So one teacher I've been very much influenced by is John Klein. He was uh, he, from Alsace-Lorraine and he died in uh, the turn of the millennium. And yeah, he's a teacher? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he has uh, Rupert Spira now and Lucille Francois is, are his disciples, so there's a kind of lineage. but. Advaita is a funny thing, because they're saying the same thing all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't really need that much of it. But there, sometimes there's turns of phrases which, like I'm just, you know, Venerable Pasadiko gave me Ajishanti's book. And just a turn of phrases, oh yeah, yeah, good way to consider that. But the real kind of meat and bones of the practice for me is, you're not a vegan, are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, is 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 Theravada because it does it does lay out morality and social responsibility and samadhi and uh, good analysis. So it gives you it gives you all kinds of uh, intellectual tools to to use and and uh, moral reflections. They're very rich that way. But I would have loved to sit with Ramana Maharshi, and that would have been powerful. But I sat with Ajahn Chah, what am I talking about? It's from one of Maharshi. It sounds like Theravada gives you the how. <clears throat> Very much. It really gives you the vehicle. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think, like Lompa Sumedho's emphasis on the unconditioned, always, always, like first, like 1970, uh, what, what year were we? 75, we started Nanachat. Just from the get go, the awakened mind. Always, always, just. We have big work projects in Chithurst, everyone's exhausted. The unconditioned, just, and it was so powerful. And, and always just pointing to that. And then introducing, you know, our moral responsibility, the Vinaya, and the different lists, but always with an aim to that realization. And he's been very consistent. So much so that monks say, well, he always says the same thing. <laughs> Do you think we in the West are really pointing towards this awakened mind as, the, as sort of the point of... No idea, really, because I, I'm just, I live in a Buddhist world. So what the West is doing, I actually don't know. 
because I don't read magazines of that sort. I read Lapham, Lapham's Quarterly, that's good. But, um, so what the general population is into, I don't, I don't really know. Like the IMS have never taught there, and so is morality being taught? Is transcendence being taught? Excuse me, cheese. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. And we don't, we don't generally talk too much about lay practice or, or those other teachers, say from IMS, because you just don't know. So you'd know more than I, wouldn't you? What's going on? You're in that realm more. Yeah. I know the realm of monasticism. I know the traps of monasticism, and there are traps. But well, you're more of um, stress reduction. Yeah. Mindfulness for stress reduction, and you go for awakening. Hmm. And without of the whole spectrum of possibilities, it seems we pick the most, you know, the ones that are closest to us. What did I just read? I just read a, a book by Barbara Ehrenreich. Is that her name? She's her. She's writing a book like "When Are We Old Enough to Die?" Mm-hmm. And a very yeah, I read it to you in the car, mm-hmm. right? A very strong critique of mindfulness disassociated from yeah. its context of of morality and enlightenment. So, can you become a more <laughs> efficient maker of widgets. It's yeah. <laughs> exactly what happened in the yogic world. It's, it's yeah. all about posture and, and how you look. You know, power yoga in its one limb of eight. Yeah. It's such a small piece of the whole practice. And even doing that is is somehow not right, correct? It, because it's more like yes. body culture rather than exercise. exercise. It's, 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 it's so yeah. westernized and um, Commodified too. That's really, a good word, isn't I, it? It really hurts my yeah. heart. Yeah. You know that kind of commodifying of everything. Whereas in India, it's always pointing to the unconditioned. Yeah. Yeah. Amara Siri's grandmother, the Indian the novice. Mm-hmm. In in our text, in the Buddhist text, we have something called kusa grass, which when the uh, the Buddha said under the Bodhi tree there was a shepherd and the Buddha asked him, Could I have some kus- can I have some of your grass? He'd collect the grass and made a mat. So Amrasiri's grandmother had the gardener grow kusa grass, then had it um, harvested a little bit, and then we had and had the weaver make a mat. And then he's got it in his kuti. And now and she was a meditator, right? You know, what a culture. <laughs> Rather than going on Amazon to seeing what's the latest bench and and, and what color zafu do I need to get enlightened? <laughs> but it's better than nothing, I think. Huh? I think so. There's a lot of... And how many people will be interested in any culture at any time in transcendence? Most are always going to be interested in maximizing their pleasure and minimizing their pain and, and being mindful and doing yoga is, is helpful. But that yearning for transcendence, what is that? That sense of otherness that some people have and some my brother hasn't got it. He's a good man, you know, nothing he's a good moral man, but if I go if I talk about that so it's just something in our karma, I guess, huh? that aspires to that. There's no evening puja tonight, uh, but you can all. Tomorrow is uh, the full moon, so on the day before the full moon, we practice on our own in the evening, so you can come here and sit, but there's no formal puja, and then tomorrow morning there's no formal puja as well, and then tomorrow night we'll try to sit up to 12. Is there a work period?
No. This is this is kind of our weekend. But someone's got to do the kitchen. That's the one thing in the monastery that needs to be done. Never stops. Never stops. Food is a necessity. I I was I was an anagarika for one hour. How's that work? Well, I I went to Bangkok. And this system of anagarkas for a year in seminaries is something that Ajahn Chah introduced. But in Thailand, you could, as a man, you could ordain almost like with no training. It was a bit frightening. But I went to Wat Wat Mahata in Bangkok. I hadn't met anyone. And I got introduced. And so they, I wanted wanted to get their robes. So they said, okay, you can be a seminary within a month. No training, nothing. So for that ceremony, I had to wear white. <laughs> and that was my anagarika shit. So I never cooked. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't train me at all. And you had to put a man in a robe and not tell him kind of what the rules are. And it, no one told me that I can't use money. So I, when I eventually made my way to Wapapong, I went first with my teacher, and then I went by myself to take up residence at Wapapong. I, I, I took a train to Upon, went to the noodle shop and had noodle. I'm in the brown row, right? Went to the noodle shop and had the noodles. I don't even know what time of day it was, I can't remember. Then I hailed a taxi, took a taxi to Wapapong, <laughs> and then I'm getting out of the car and paying the taxi driver with money. And Ajahnananda was a very, very tough monk. He's from Buffalo. A good friend, he thinks something, he says, oh, welcome. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't know, I told him. Soon found out. So like for a monk to use money, a Wapapong monk, that's a super no-no. And the noodle shop, I don't know about that either. <laughs> Was that just lack of training, or was there a strategy? No, like, like they didn't tell. They didn't tell anything. Mm-hmm. They just put. Uh, they gave me the Mahasi uh, method, slow mm-hmm. walking. That's that was really. Uh, I could have gone crazy actually. <laughs> no, no instruction. They just say, you walk slowly, and watch your breath. Well, thanks. That's it. <laughs> it took hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. It was very dangerous. Mm-hmm. But that, that was only about a month, I think, before I met Ajahn Chah. <laughs> you remember the first time you met Ajahn Chah? Kind of, but it wasn't rockets and lightning and no. rainbows. and mm-hmm. It was a very peaceful place. I think it was the whole atmosphere out of the city and very calm, very still. I think that's probably, I mean, it's so long ago. I was with a, my my preceptor as a seminarian, not my preceptor, the monk that introduced me was a Thai monk who had been at the Buddha temple for seven years, so he spoke good English, in London, London, England. And um, so he he got me ordained as a seminarian, and then he was from that part of the world where Rajan Chah lives. And I think he already knew I needed to be with a good teacher. So he took me to his village and then he took me to see Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah, and I, 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 yeah, I think I just asked, can I come and stay here? And Ajahn Chah said, the food's not very good. <laughs> and it was mistranslated, is that there isn't very much food. So I said, I'll, I'll only eat a little bit, I promise. <laughs> But it was true, the food was not very good. <laughs> and he knew Westerners. Ajahn Sumedha was already there at that time? He was, but he was in India. Mm-hmm. On, uh, on, he had just finished his five years. So he was on Tudong uh, in, in India. So who was there? There was Warupanyo, Pabagro, Kemadamu, and Santachito. Four. And of those, I think only one was at Wapapong. No, Ananda had arrived too. Yeah, so Ananda was there too. Yeah. So there were five or six of us. 
Is, is this the place where the Westerners went? Or were there no, that came later. That we developed. That, that was set 1973 for me. Mm-hmm. And in 1975, started uh, Wat Nana which is where the Westerners can go. But Westerners can go to any branch monasteries, just their introduction is better through the monastery where they speak English. But then they have, like, Ajahn Shah has about 300 branch monasteries now in Thailand. And a lot of just small places, five monks, four monks. So, you know, there's many places to go. So most are very austere, pretty tough. And did you have many choices at that time? When you chose to go to his... I didn't know anything. I just like I just flew to Thailand with the intention of, of getting the robe. I knew no, no one in Thailand. And then I only met one monk in my life. And he disrobed. Uh-huh. He and I were going to... Yeah, I was living with him in India. And I got inspired. I had read Krishnamurti about three months before that. And I, you know, I think I was searching for a lifestyle... And then he came on and talked about the Vinaya, strangely enough, as well as Buddha Dhamma. He was, very, he was a very erudite man. And I said, that's it, that's how I can do it. So then we agreed to meet in Calcutta and then fly to Bangkok. And he went off to Kathmandu first, and then he wrote to me that he had disrobed, which threw me for a tizzy. You know, what? An inauspicious beginning. <laughs> You can do that. <laughs> so then, then I, I got hepatitis and I didn't go to Thai chicken out. And, and I went to Switzerland and worked in Switzerland. And then finally, I found my way back to Thailand about a year later. And then I just went to Thailand on his recommendation that Thailand probably has good meditation masters. Didn't know anyone. And I. And he told me, the only information I had, he said, there's a Western monk in Chiang Mai. So I got to the airport. <clears throat> I said, where's Chiang Mai? I didn't even know where Chiang Mai was. And how do you say Western monk? In Thai, Praferang. And I took a train to Chiang Mai. And then I just started to walk around the different scenes where Westerners were. And asked the Thais and... <coughs> It took me three days, and then I found uh, Santi Tito. <coughs> he was a German monk. And he took me to Bangkok and got me, connected me with someone. <coughs> so, if that's not karma, <coughs> I mean, it's just weird, because it was so against my culture. Monasticism? And, and your, was your state of mind, like, did you have any idea what you were doing, or were you, did you feel like sort of... I had the insight. Yeah, well, from from well from from childhood, but also from reading Krishnamurti. Mm. You know, once your mind reaches clarity, that's it. You just know you have to get there. Mm. You have no choice. So the irony is, this is not a path Krishnamurti would have. That's the that's the irony, and <laughs> what I found with Krishnamurti people, they were the most narrow-minded. Because huh? I, I I remember going to a Krishnamurti meeting in in Wellington. And I thought, great, you know. And they all looked at me like I was an insect. <laughs> you know, some kind of caterpillar. Oh, you're religious. And I could see, they, they, they don't understand what he's teaching. They're like totally biased. So, like Ajahn Charge and Sumedho, they're always about the awakened mind, not about becoming. That's why I very quickly... Well, I, I, I just had the good fortune to find teachers who were talking about the path in a way that fit my own insights. Mm. You know, that, yeah, of course. And, 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 and the help in all the nitty-gritty of trying to um, you know, deal with my own stuff, whatever it was. Yeah, but it is an irony from Krishnamurti, yeah. But it's not, really, when you understand what he was saying, that it's not... Because the, the trouble is then you just reject all conventions, which is not what he was saying. So it's attachment, attachment to conventions. Because the monks would visit him in England in, uh, what is it, Brock? There was a school near Chithurst. 
And when he was in residence there, the monks would visit him. He was very polite. Venerable Tanabra asked him, have you ever suffered Krishnamurti? He said, yeah, when my brother died. A big turning point for him. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah huge. Yeah. So there he goes. He was in pain, too, most of his life, wasn't he? Yeah. This thing he called the process. Yeah, I, I never I never understood that, really. And and his relationship sometimes to that woman was a bit strange. She had enough. Yeah, it was. I read, you know, I read that critique of him. And then I started to get critical of him, and I said, no, he's giving me this. Whatever else he does is not my business. I'm going to always be grateful for what he's given me. Which I think is a good way to, to be with teachers, rather than expect them to be perfect. Yeah, he's very... We'll be going to Ojai. Oh, really? To see his home. Oh. That is in Northern California? Um, Southern. Southern, uh-huh. Yeah. Ah. On the high plateaus overlooking the Pacific. Oh, lovely. And that's where he, he so often met with the uh, his group. children and his group and would go walking along the trails. Very, yeah, very clear. That's where he, he apparently said he... Um, <clears throat> Attained his awakening uh -huh. of sorts was under a tree outside the home, his house where he lived. Was in Hawaii. <clears throat> and he taught in Switzerland mm. and um, England, mm -hmm. those three places. There's a wealth of teachers around. Very good, good teachers. We're lucky. Mm.